Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 448 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Sunday, October 9th, 2022. I am your host for this episode. I am Sam Klein. I'm coming to you from my home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I am joined only today by Jason Evans. Jason, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Sam. I had a very interesting Saturday. Went down Went down to the flats. That's what I call it here in Atlanta. And I watched Duke play some football. Uh, Jason watched Duke play a disappointing football game. We're going to talk about that football game. Donald Wine is not here. He is off in Europe uh, ensuring victory for the uh, various U.S. soccer teams. So I'm sure we'll hear from him coming soon. Jason, I think that Countdown to Craziness is only days away. Like the the basketball yeah. season is <laughs> is uh, is sneaking up on us in a weird way because we've been talking football. So after the break, we are going to discuss the recent announcement that Jeremy Roach has been named the sole captain for John Shire's first Duke men's basketball team. Before we get there, though, Jason, as we mentioned, you were at the football game yesterday. Uh, it was it was a bit of a sloppy affair. Duke loses 23 to 20 in overtime to Georgia Tech. Duke was down 20 to six late in this game and managed to come back to force overtime right at the end of the game. It was pretty thrilling, relied on some uh, timely Georgia Tech penalties to push it into overtime. But then the Blue Devils were not able to convert on their opportunity in the first overtime period. Uh, took a desperation, very long field goal that came up short and wide. So. Jason, give me a rundown of what you saw yesterday in Atlanta with the Blue Devils now four and two. Well, I mean, there are so many different things to talk about from this game. Uh, there was someone who emailed with me who said, and I thought this was really apt, Sam. They said that this game was Duke's gone in 54 seconds game for football, except with the wrong ending. And folks, if you, you know... I think most of you who listen to this podcast know what I'm talking about, but Gone in 54 Seconds is, of course, the legendary game in 2001 against Maryland where the Blue Devils have this big comeback led by Jason Williams um, late in the game uh, where they scored 10 points in the final 54 seconds and force overtime, and then the Blue Devils win. It is part of the you know truly legendary series of games that Duke had against Maryland that year. But what a lot of people don't remember about that game is it was, for, for the first 39 minutes, Duke was terrible. They were just not good at all. And as a result, um, the game becomes legendary, but we don't remember everything that happened. This is very similar to that because it's not going to be legendary because Duke lost in overtime. But if we'd won in overtime, you know, it would be one of those like, oh, my God, where were you kind of things. Uh, it, It was a horrible game to watch. I mean, Duke was pretty thoroughly outplayed throughout virtually this entire game. There were a lot of folks on the the Duke Basketball Report bulletin boards who said they gave up and stopped watching. There, there was even one guy who posted who said he was at the game. Like me, he had gotten tickets. I was in the press box, but he'd, he'd gotten tickets for the game. And he said he walked out <laughs> during the fourth quarter and he had to, to find out about the comeback, you know, listen to the comeback in his car on his way, dry, way driving home, which was probably terrible. Um I mean, Duke found a miraculous way to tie the game at the very end. And then we looked like we had a great chance to win it all uh, after we forced Georgia Tech into a field goal. Uh, It looked like Duke had a first down inside the 10-yard line in overtime. Um, And then the flag comes out. It's an offensive pass interference penalty. It backs Duke up so that we're both looking at a third and forever 
and uh, we're you know pretty much out of field goal range in 50 plus yard field goal which is a big ass for a college field goal kicker and 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 so like in literally a matter of seconds it went from we were going to win to we were going to lose I, Sam I got a ton to say I want to let you get in a little bit but I ESPN you know has this little you know pie chart thing or graph where they are graphing your chance to win the game at any given moment and and at one point during the fourth quarter with about nine minutes or so left in the fourth quarter Georgia Tech was better than 98 percent to win the game like basically you know the folks who said oh I left I checked out they weren't wrong I mean Georgia Tech was it was one of these games where there was no way Duke was going to come back and then you know miraculously Duke did come back and in overtime the graph shot up and Duke was actually a 66 percent chance to win the game in overtime at one point um and then of course the penalty happens um and things go south and and it it's all done I, I got a ton more I want I mean do you want to get in all how, how should we do this should I just keep on rambling <laughs> no I well I, l- let me let me give a few thoughts here uh one of which is that it occurred to me this morning. Let me let me do a quick big picture thing. It occurred to me this morning that uh, there is a, a somewhat scary parallel to last season where Duke won its first three games and then lost nine games in a row. This year, uh, Duke Duke has gone four and one so far. This, you know, it was four and one through its first five and has now gotten to four and two. And the schedule basically gets harder from here with a couple of of you know bad ACC exceptions but Duke still has to play Pittsburgh they still have to play Wake Forest they have to play North Carolina this weekend UNC is a very different team than than basically all the teams that Duke has played this season I don't know that Carolina is better than Kansas but um, but all of that is coming up so I am aware of this I think that the circumstances are different this season for Duke and it it just if I can it it feels very different I mean remember that that part of that start that supposedly good start last year was a loss to charlotte i mean right thank you for the correction there jason duke lost its first game won its next three and then proceeded to lose its final eight last season uh, and the other thing is it wasn't like duke didn't look nearly as good as they've looked thus far this season I mean, exactly and we, and and yeah and the other thing i would say to that is that uh you know you you pointed out duke played terribly for the first you know most of this game and then was able to mount a comeback to force the overtime that alone should be uh should be good evidence for duke fans that there is a better win coming than the wins that it's had so far uh you know you could argue whether northwestern or virginia is duke's best win of the season so far i think duke is going to beat a better team than both of those teams sometime between now and the end of the the rest of the season but um the other thing that is I'd say was most troubling from yesterday was the, was the penalties, um, not just procedural penalties, but um, you know, uh, penalties with, with Shaka Hayward getting thrown out of the game. And uh, all of that was really more of what did Duke in than poor execution. Look, Duke is not recruiting four and five star guys primarily for its, its football team. Uh, This is not the basketball team's recruiting apparatus. What usually has been Duke's strength, even in the height of the Cutcliffe era, uh, was discipline. And there was a genuine and total lack of that throughout most of the game yesterday. That's ultimately what cost Duke a lot of its opportunities early in the game. And that's what cost Duke its opportunity in overtime. Yeah. So uh, a couple different things I want to do here. And, and I think I may do one of them and then do the other. Just so, Sam, so you can see, 
I've got a little notepad of notes that I was jotting down while I was uh, while I was sitting in the press booth, and I want to get to those in a minute. But before I do, I, you mentioned the turnovers, and I I'm sorry, not the turnovers, the penalties. I I, I did want to. There are a couple of things that I wanted to say about the game in general before I get to sort of my observations from the from the press box. Um, Jordan Calhoun was hurt early in the game for Duke. He's he's sort of our most reliable receiver. Why am I talking about this related to penalties? Well, because he got hurt, John Tavis Robertson, um, who who really hasn't played a lot this season. You know, he's like probably the fourth, fifth wide receiver kind of situation. Um, when Calhoun got hurt, John Tavis Robertson started playing a lot more and was on the field in key plays a lot more. And as a result, he was the guy who committed the offensive pass interference penalty that got Duke backed up in overtime, you know, that took us from inside the 10 to being in a situation where we um, were, were looking at a, a, a long field goal. Um, he was also the guy, believe it or not, who had the, um, he had like a late hit unnecessary roughness penalty in the first half Duke had moved into field goal range certainly we were you know threatening perhaps to score and and there was a play where there's a bit of a pile up and he came into it late and committed an unnecessary penalty that that again backed Duke up and and took us out of field goal range and and one of the stories of the game in my opinion was how often Duke would drive inside the Georgia Tech 40 and then the drives stalled or ended in a turnover we lost the turnover battle we we had a Riley Gunner had a really bad interception that that ended a drive but uh, I counted Duke had six drives until the very last drive of the game where we scored a touchdown we had six drives where we went inside the 40 and we came away with a total of six points on those six drives that's that's atrocious I mean, you can talk about red zone, but frankly, once you get inside the 40, you start going, okay, let's count the yards. We need like five more yards here or so to, to be in field goal range. And Duke was consistently getting inside the 40, sometimes inside the 30 or even the 20 and coming away with zero points. It was it was really, really frustrating. And I do want to point out, by the way, as much as I admire the resilience of the team, they never gave up. They continued fighting. Uh, there there was some illusion in this comeback that happened for Duke. First of all, the first part of the comeback was a phenomenal punt return. And Samir Hagens, the guy who returned the punt, um, had had other big punt returns earlier in the game. I, I, at one point, I was wondering, I was like, why is Georgia Tech continuing to punt the ball to Duke? I would have punted the damn ball out of bounds. I would have been like, look, let's give up 10 yards of, of field position to punt the ball out of bounds and not let Samir Hagens bring it back again. Because that dude was our, our best offense was our punt return, um, but on Duke's final drive, Sam, we took it eighty yards. We went, we went from the twenty to the end zone in like two minutes. It was huge. You could say, "Wow, great, amazing drive." It is definitely worth noting. Of the eighty yards that we went, forty-three of them were from three penalties by Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech got a rushing the passer. They got like a late hit or something. I forget what it was, but an unnecessary roughness penalty. Both of those for 15 yards each. And then there was a pass interference for 13 yards. So on Duke's final drive that we all feel so good about, more than half the yards, more than half the yards came from Georgia Tech committing penalties. And and the reality is there's, you know, I'm not putting the blame on him, but there's no way to say it other than this. Riley Leonard was just playing bad. I mean, Tech was blitzing. And they were getting to him and his top receiver. Like I said, Jordan Calhoun was out. 
and the other guys weren't getting a lot of separation, but still Riley needs to be better. There were times where he had time and he just made a bad throw. There were guys who were open, especially deep downfield, and Riley Leonard was not able to make the pass the way we've seen him earlier this year. He has been super accurate this season. I think at one point in the past couple of weeks, he was like the most accurate passer in the ACC or maybe even you know one of the most accurate passers in all of major you know power five football and he was not accurate at all yesterday so i was i was very bothered by that and then the other thing was i feel like the duke coaching could have been better our play calling felt incredibly conservative and there were just times you mentioned the penalties but there were other times duke did things that just didn't feel like a team that was using its head um there was a there was one that really stuck out to me. There was a punt in the first half where I, one of those times where Duke had a drive where we got to the 40 and then couldn't get any further. And so we punted the ball to, to Georgia tech. Um, and it was really a perfect punt that we should have downed inside the five. Heck we probably should have downed it like the two or the one, but the guy who went to down it went into the end zone. And uh, you know, when he downed the ball and as a result, it's a touchback. And th- that was the drive that Georgia tech then took the other way and ended up getting their first points of the game. If you execute that play properly, if you don't go into the end zone, which is sort of, you just cannot go in the end zone if you're a guy downing the ball. If you don't go in the end zone, then you've got Georgia Tech pinned, and I don't think they drive 98, 98, 9 yards to get to get points the way they did when they started from their 20. Anyway, I, I've been going on and on. Like I said, I got more. It was It was a frustrating day. I thought the offense especially was really bad. To the point about the conservative play calling, uh, you know, this is probably more of what we can expect from a Mike Elko led team than a David Cutcliffe team. We talked during his hiring process about how the team was going to approach a lot of things differently. Elko is a much more conservative uh, defensive minded coach, obviously came up as a defensive coordinator. So these are sort of the, the changes that a 23 20 final score. Uh, in in this era of Duke football may feel like a high scoring game relative to the very high scoring affairs that we were used to under Cutcliffe. So Jason, I, I, I hear it. And I, I, I need to, uh, I, I have to decide how concerned I am about, about the conservative play calling and Leonard looking like he was a little overwhelmed because some of this might just be growing pains for a team with a lot of new guys, especially on offense and um, and then entering ACC season, Georgia Tech, you know, might be the best team they've played so far. They might not. Right. Duke has played a couple of other teams that are probably of similar caliber. And you're, Kansas, you're shaking the, your head. Kansas is better. Than, Kansas is better. Kansas is better. Right. But oh, sorry. So Kansas that, that Duke lost to. Right. If we yeah. if we ignore Kansas, the one team that Duke lost to on the road, et cetera, et cetera. I, and I don't know if if the environment at Georgia Tech was nearly as as difficult as it probably was at Kansas with them all hyped up over the fact that the team was playing well. It didn't seem like it was particularly full down there in Atlanta yesterday, but, um, but- it, it was it was homecoming and they had 30 something thousand. Um, there was one side of the field like there's a there's a shaded side of the field and there's a sun side of the field. The sun side of the field was not very full. The shaded side was pretty full. This is uh this is a dynamic that Duke fans who go to games at Wallace Wade Stadium are familiar with. In the <laughs> yes. you know in, games in September, uh, the shady side is full, like in front of the press box, and then uh, and then as the season goes on, everyone seems to migrate over to the opposing sideline. 
uh, it seems like, because that's that's where it's uh, it's more comfortable. But all of that uh, being said, I'm sort of waiting until next week to see how Duke responds from from this loss goes to UNC uh, and and sees how. Uh, I, I want to see how Duke how Duke responds to this and plays against Carolina, a Carolina team that's coming off a thrilling win from yesterday. Uh, I, you know, I, I sort of thought last week maybe we're getting Georgia Tech at the right time uh, because they've had a little bit too much excitement recently. I was wrong. Let's see if if Duke can pick themselves up and uh, and and put on a better showing against UNC next week. If we see a lot of the same, you know, uh, you know, missed targets and and penalties and things next week then I'll probably be a lot more concerned than I am right at this moment. Well, well, it's it's worth noting. Um, Duke's schedule, we, we get UNC and at Miami for the next two games. Those are going to be tough games. Duke will most assuredly not be favored and, and could easily, probably will be um, a seven-plus point underdog in both of those contests because um, Carolina and Miami are arguably the top two teams in, in our half of the ACC. You know, I think probably, maybe, perhaps. Anyway, um, so those will be tough games. But the the key games on Duke's schedule coming up, um, we've got after those two games, we've got Boston College and Virginia Tech back to back, and BC and Virginia Tech are are games where unless Duke completely tanks from here, you would expect the Blue Devils to be favored in both of those games. We were favored against Georgia Tech. Duke was a three and a half point pick over Georgia Tech. So, you know, even if you're favored, it doesn't mean anything's a given. But as this team sort of searches its way to get to six wins and get get to a bowl, um, those are the two really key games um, coming up. If 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 we are, you know, I don't I don't I'm not saying we're going to lose to North Carolina, Miami. But, uh, you know, to me, I think the, the the tale of the season will probably be written largely by the B.C. and Virginia Tech games. And um, by the way, I'd, Jason, I'd love to steal one, though, <laughs> uh, Duke gets UNC and Miami coming up, you mentioned, and then they get a bye before they go to Boston College, which uh, will will probably be uh, uh, well needed, uh, regardless of the outcome of the next two games. All right. So, hey, so my last thing on this, uh, like I mentioned, I have my little notebook and I I just want to really quickly let folks know uh, about the notes that I took while I was sitting in the press box. This is sort of, you know, more personal observation, I guess you would say it. Um, First of all, the Georgia Tech press box. Uh, served um, pulled pork with just the worst barbecue. So I, I, it was it was atrocious. They had really good pulled pork, uh, and the barbecue sauce to put on it was uh, th- this. This was not Southern quality barbecue. I don't know what that that sauce was. It was it was tasteless. It was more orange than like red. I I I, I don't know. It was just. It it resembled no barbecue sauce I've what ever was it, eaten. Was in my it a life. mustard-based barbecue sauce, perhaps? If it was more uh, orange than No, red? no, it, it, I don't think it was. There may have been a little bit. Sam, I'm telling you, it was so tasteless. I couldn't even do the is this mustard or vinegar or ketchup? Like, I don't need it might have been a salad dressing, man. I'm, I'm really people not sure. people are really sad for your for the free food that you got at the Georgia Tech football game. That's yeah, it, the free food was not up to up to par. <laughs> I will say. It still so might have been better service. than than the than the Wallace Wade Stadium food from 15 years ago. It probably was. They had sodas, and for some reason, I got thirsty. I must have downed like five Coke Zeros. So, uh, so I almost missed key moments of the fourth quarter because I was headed to the bathroom a lot. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> so I, I did want to praise the Duke fans in attendance. There was a there was a pretty decent number of Dukies who were there. They filled up 
almost four to five sections of 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 the end zone of of one area of the end zone that was designated as the Duke area. So I really thought the Duke fans did a nice job of showing up. And as worth noting, in overtime, when the Georgia Tech fans were stunned that we were still playing, that it was in overtime, um, you could hear the Duke fans chanting defense, defense, louder than anyone from Georgia Tech um, shouting anything. So hat tip to the the Duke fans. Uh, the, The PA system. I have to say something about the PA system at Georgia Tech. It was really loud. Like, I don't know. They turned that stuff up to 11, man. It was super loud. It overwhelmed any noise the crowd was making. And they have this thing. Whenever they score or, like, if it's a key third down for the opposition or if they get a first down, something good happens for Georgia Tech. The PA system plays the sound of a, like, of a of a train, like a train. It's sort of like a combination of a train whistle, train engine kind of thing. So loud. I mean, like, I, it... It caused me to like fall out of my chair one time. It was like unbelievable how loud and obnoxious and annoying this PA system Jason, was. Jason, how old are you? I'm 54, 55. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I complained recently about, about the, I don't remember what event I was at, but I was at some sporting event where I was like, the PA system here is too loud. And it was in that moment that I realized that uh, I don't know. I don't know what age it is that you age out of the target demographic, but I'm not in it anymore. Uh, so I think that's just I think that's just what happens. I I think that was it. Uh, have you been to a to a game against? I think it's Navy that brings the cannon to to all of their games. Have you been to a no? A but that, game that's that Navy cool. Wait, wait. A cannon is cool. It's cool. It's extremely cool. But let me tell you, if you aren't anticipating it, it is <laughs> terrifying uh, to hear. I've heard it. I think I heard it at Wallace Wade Stadium, and and I, I I worked a game where Duke was playing at Navy, and they and they fire that cannon off. Man, that thing is loud. <laughs> this just in war is hell. Cannons <laughs> loud. Turns out. All right. So the last thing I have, I was like, wait, what's happening here? Midway through the fourth quarter, when when Tech was frankly, it looked like I said, ESPN said Georgia Tech was ninety eight percent to win this game. There was a timeout. And the Georgia Tech band, Georgia Tech has a big, impressive band. The band started playing Every Time We Touch. Now, I need to know. I don't know. It's now They played it pretty well. And the the cheerleaders were dancing and stuff like that. I mean, like, it it's possible that this is just part of their repertoire, that they just do this all the time. But I think it's also possible that the Georgia Tech band was seriously trolling Duke. <laughs> that, that seems like a fairly deep cut troll to be made. Yeah. Like, yeah. I... I don't know. I mean, we I've been hearing that song in in relation to Duke sports for so long that I don't right. even I, I'm like too far in it at this point. So I don't know how much other fan bases like realize that that is one of our songs. Um, but it, it seems it, it seems weird that the Georgia I mean, it, it's possible they just didn't know. I would I would have bet that they don't even know that it's affiliated with Duke and they were just playing it because it happens to be a fun song for a pet band to play. But if it is, I, if it is, bravo to them. Yeah, I don't know. I I think I, I it is possible that it's just a fun song they play. I think it's also very possible. Band, you know, band leaders, these guys, they they talk to each other. They probably know what each other, you know, I'm sure they pay attention to what each other's doing. Um, I I would not be at all surprised if the Georgia Tech band leader guy or gal, whoever it may be, um, was aware that 
that every time we touch, you know, is sort of a special song to Duke. It may be something that they have, you know, they may have 20 or 30 different songs that they sometimes play and it could be one of them. But, but I thought it was, and the fact that it happened, like at sort of, it was a timeout where I was like, I was about, I was almost ready to leave. I was like, ah, you know, ah. because by the way, we, uh, there was, there was no press conference for me to attend. Mike Gelko did his press conference virtually. He, it was not in person. It was over zoom. I listened to it. There wasn't much, you know, we didn't pull any sound because there wasn't much that, that was said in the press conference that I thought needed to be re- repeated on, on the podcast here. Um, but anyway, I, so that was sort of my last thing. I was like, is Georgia Tech expert trolling here? I, I think they might have been. To go back to your point about Duke doing a good job of filling up their section, I just did a quick look at the Duke roster. There are 16 guys on the Duke roster who are from the state of Georgia and six more yeah. from the state of Alabama. Um, and I didn't do a check on South Carolina because I figure it's easy for them to get to a few other Duke games. But uh, you got to figure that that there's also a pretty good, uh, not just alumni contingent, but even like the player family contingent that uh, that that shows out for, you know, when Duke visits uh, Georgia Tech. And, and I do want to say thank you to the Georgia Tech Athletic Department for allowing me to sit on press row. Um, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Sam, are, are you going to do it for Boston College? Uh, I am. I'm figuring out what my plan is for Boston College because the game's on a Friday night, which is uh, more, more, more. I, I, I am almost certain that I will be attending the game. Um, the question is what time I'm going to be able to get there because I have a job, like a day job, where sometimes I do have to work like into the evenings, even occasionally on a Friday. So I have to figure out what the what the move is. I, I have talked to a few friends in the area who are BC alums about the the setup for going to the games and the assurance that I got from one of my friends is that uh, you can usually show up to the tailgate and find a ticket like falling out of someone's pocket in the parking lot. So, uh, Hey, l- last thing I should note, you talk about friends. I, there were a lot of people who, who there were some folks who reached out to the podcast who were like, Hey, Jason, I know you're coming to the game. I'd love to to say hi. Um, and there were people that I, I wanted to try and uh, meet up with. It, it just never worked out. Uh, my day was too busy before the game. And um, the the highways around Atlanta tell me if this is a surprise. Uh, th- there's a lot of construction going on, and I knew that I was going to be in terrible traffic to even get to the game. And then the last thing was, as much as I thanked the Georgia Tech press office for, you know, letting me sit in the press box and the such, my parking, admittedly, it was free. You know, they had press parking. Press parking was so to put it in Duke terms. The press parking was like they had us park at, in the Duke Gardens for a game at Cameron. It was a it was a hall. <laughs> it was a long. I looked at where the press park lot was and I was like, "Am I sure? Is this right?" I checked with them. They go, "Yep." And I was like, "That's like a mile walk, man." <laughs> so the anyway. uh, a lot of I, th- I believe that the the Duke game press parking is in the Science Drive garage. But if you get caught in the wrong spot, it can take you just as long to leave the game as if you had parked in the Duke Gardens. So. Uh, yeah, bummer. Uh, you didn't pay for that spot though, so that they they feel like yeah. they're they're entitled to put you wherever wherever they damn well please. So Amen. That's uh, that 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 is how it works. Unfortunately, yeah. I'll uh, I'll, I'll give an update as the BC game gets closer, and I'll have a better idea of of what my plan is if there are, if there are folks who are up in these parts who are who are going to that game. Uh, Jason, let's take a quick break. We're going to come back and and chat a little bit about Jeremy Roach, and then I don't know. If um, listeners, if you have had a chance to watch the highlights of Victor Wenbanyama uh, in the scrimmages that he was playing recently in Las Vegas, oh boy, 
That dude is different. We're going to talk about him and Jeremy Roach. So stick around. As we mentioned before the break, the big news out of Duke basketball this week is that Jeremy Roach, the junior uh, starting point guard for this upcoming season, has been named the sole captain of the Duke men's basketball team. So we wanted to talk just a little bit about that honor for Roach and what it might mean for the team. Jason, I will let you get us started. So uh, first of all, congrats to Jeremy Roach. Um, I I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, talk down about him being named captain by saying it was obvious and expected and things like that. It is still an honor. It is still a show of respect. Um, And, and it, it puts responsibility on Jeremy to to show the rest of the team both his own personal leadership and what it means to be a player at Duke. It is worth noting that Jeremy Roach and Jalen Blakes are the only scholarship players who ever played for John Shire at all, who've ever played at Duke at all. I mean, in truth, John Shire barely knows the rest of the guys on the team and none of the other guys in the team, none of them know what it means to be a captain at Duke. So there wasn't a big pool of candidates, <laughs> so to speak, for captain. But at the same time, I am I'm thrilled that Jeremy Roach was named captain. I think it is important that the team have a captain. Uh, you, you know, a couple of years ago, the COVID year, we talked a lot on this podcast about the fact that Coach K didn't formally name captains. He had like this, what did he call it? His uh, like a leadership group or something like that. It was like Wendell Moore and Matthew Hurt and I forget someone else. Um, it, it was not uh it was not a good situation, I think. And part of that that team struggled to show leadership. Um, and I think that was partially why. So I'm glad that Jeremy Roach was named captain. The only other guy, there was like some rumors out there. There was like a, a tweet that got misinterpreted or something that said that Jacob Grandison was also going to be named captain, and and he wasn't. Um, I, I I don't necessarily think that that the captaincy thing is all done. We have seen Coach K in the past add captains throughout the season. That if someone steps up in a leadership role, that Coach K says, you know, hey, at a certain point in the year, that person has earned being called captain. And I think that that could happen with this team. I think everybody prefers for there to be multiple captains, not just one, you know, you want those extra voices, especially if the extra voice is, you know, can be someone else on the floor. So I think Jacob Grandison has a chance to get there. Um, I think Kale catchings, believe it or not, is a possibility as well. He's another guy who's very experienced and, and he played a few years for Tommy Amaker at Harvard. So he has a little bit of a sense of what, you know, what the Duke ethic is like. Um, but I mean, clearly you need to be established. You need to be respected. You need to be probably a member of the rotation to have a real shot at being captain. So with that criteria in there, Jeremy Roach was, was the guy. And again, I think it's a good choice and it's the right choice. The only sort of intrigue in this, Jason, was what you mentioned about potentially one of the grad students getting named captain. But I like this from the perspective of, it's good to get returning Duke guys to be the the captain here. Uh, I, I think that there's an element of of the culture that is is good to 
have continuity in from from the previous regime because you know as as much as a lot of the same pieces are in place a lot of the the same structure is in place from last year there's a enormous change at the top and it's sort of hard to it's hard to predict where the um like where the whole like what holes get created by Mike Shashevsky not being in the building every day are um and and so naming a captain who has been here for a couple of years who knows his way around I, I think is helpful the other thing that is good is that I believe this year we're going to hear a lot about John Shire pushing Jeremy Roach to be the alpha dog on this team and to step up when when they need a bucket or step up when they need motivation or, or whatever he's going to have to play not just the point guard role but like the the key um sort of culture motivational figure you know he needs to be uh one part trey jones but he also needs to be one part emil jefferson and uh and and i like the fact that he's taking the solo captain role because it sort of tells him like man this is this, this is your opportunity here there are other guys who are experienced there are guys who have played big roles on teams. Uh, you mentioned, I think Jacob Grandison is the the best example of this, but Ryan Young and Kale Ketchings have both been on competitive D1 teams. Um, so so it's not like there's no one else on the roster that that's never played in a big game, but Jeremy Roach is the only one that's played in big games down the stretch for Duke. Well, and I think your point about Shire wanting to push Roach is so good because we, we've heard that, you know, Jeremy Roach is not a guy who uh, who is a loud, vocal, forceful personality. He has talked about, he personally has talked about the fact that he needs to be more forceful. He needs to be more uh, you know, aggressive of a leader and that he needs to learn how to do that. Naming him captain says to him, okay, Jeremy, do it. And and I think that's that's a big, a big part of this is not just what, Roach brings to the team in terms of leadership and knowledge and understanding what it means to be a Duke player. Uh, part of it is also inspiring Jeremy Roach to be even more of the things that he maybe struggles at a little bit um, in terms of, of leading the team and, and not just leading by example, but leading vocally. Jason, can we spend a minute talking about Victor Wenbanyama? Uh, this is not Duke news because there is yeah, no this, chance. <laughs> there's no chance this dude is going to college. <laughs> but um folks if you like basketball uh then uh and, and if you haven't seen the the highlights of when Banyama he's a he's a, a French technically he's a he's a professional basketball player over there in France um plays for the French national team was in um the uh, G League Ignite uh, event uh, a few days ago yeah, this and- was so so Sam, this is like a, 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 a it was literally a showcase event that they right. put on where they invited his French team and uh, to play against the yeah the G League Ignite, which has Scoot Henderson, and and the sort of the the presumption was oh this is Victor versus Scoot. Let's see which one of them is going to be the first pick in the NBA draft. Which is a little silly because Scoot Henderson is a point guard, and yes. Victor Wenbanyama is an alien. So they they play <laughs> they play slightly different positions. And Scoot Henderson, I don't want to I don't want to downplay the fact that in this game he was insanely good. Uh, yeah. Like a, a guy who like, again, if like if he was coming to Duke, we would be like, oh, my God, um, yeah. imagine the things like we're excited to see what Derek Whitehead does on this team. We're excited to see what Derek Lively does on this team. If we had Scoot Henderson or, or Victor Wenbanyama coming to Duke this season, we would be talking about them nonstop relative to those guys. 
Yeah, let, let's be clear that Scoot will be the number two pick in the draft, and and the team that gets him is not going to be like, ah, oh, they're going to be like, we're getting a, a I mean, a, NBA experts say they look at Scoot Henderson and they go, that guy's a future NBA All Star. The problem uh, is he's in a he's in a draft with a guy who, like you said, is an alien. He literally looks like he's from another planet. So when Banyama is seven foot four, there have not been many guys in NBA history that have been seven foot four. Like full stop. It's like. Yao Ming and uh, Taco Ralph Sampson and Ralph Sampson. Like there are not that many guys that are, that are this big. There's a, there was a great photo of him standing with Rudy Gobert famously, oh my God. famously enormous Rudy Gobert. And when Banyama's got like two or three inches on him uh, and Gobert's like, Gobert's like standing next to him. Like, cool. This is, this is cool that I'm with this guy. Um, he's not, he's not quite as thick as Gobert. Cause no. you know, he's only like 18 years old. Um, but uh, but he's completely unstoppable because he can run right down the court and dribble, and he's seven four. So uh, and so the three can, pointers in the first hit, game, he was seven of ten from three. In the second can, game, he hit a Steph Curry pull up from thirty. It was yeah. ridiculous. And he he's like he's like on the pick and roll, and uh, he's got the ball, and the guy sets a pick for him, and he just like jab steps to the right and and pops a three from like yeah. twenty eight feet. So um, anyway, go check out the highlights of Victor Wembanyama if you haven't seen them yet because uh, it's awesome. It it is amazing to watch, but I just want to caution people about one thing. So he scored thirty seven in one game. He scored thirty six the next, draining three pointers, blocking shot, uh, blocking shots all over. Like literally, it's not clear. Within- it's not clear that he knows how to play on ball defense yet. But it sort of doesn't matter because <laughs> as soon as his man goes up for a shot, whether it's from thirty feet or if he drives around Wenbanyama and goes to the basket, he's gonna just block it. Like it, it yeah. doesn't matter. He's just too long. He, it, it's amazing. But I, I'll tell you what I did. I went and I looked. I found the box scores. He plays for a French club called Mets ninety two. I, I found box scores from some of his recent games, and he has not been tearing up the French league the way he tore up the G League Ignite. Now I don't know if that's because he just hasn't, you know, like it wasn't. Uh, you know, he wasn't motivated as much in these French league games, or maybe he just had a good couple days. It's worth noting, you know, in his most recent games in the French league, he had 23 points and 10 rebounds in one game, 19 and six in one game, 10 and eight. Now th- those are good numbers, but they aren't 35 plus, uh, you know, hitting like five, six, seven, three pointers. Um, and in fact, in some, one of these games, he was one of six from three and, and he only had he's only averaging two blocks per game. Now, two blocks per game is a lot, but based on what we saw, you would think he'd be averaging like six or seven blocks per game. So maybe this is just a case of Wimbanyama having a couple really great days. So, you know, I'm not so sure that everybody should be. I, there was a guy in my fantasy league. I mean, a, a fantasy NBA league. We're getting ready for our draft who wanted to know if he could draft Victor right now this year and we have we have a keeper league so you can hold on to two players each season and he's like and I'll hold on to him for next year and we were like no you you can't do that that's not the way the league works um but re- regardless you know like you only would do that with the top top 30 player in the league I don't know that Victor's going to come in I don't think he's going to come in and be a top 30 player in the NBA from day one the the, the hype train may be a, accelerating a little too fast on this guy he looks amazing he looks like the future. He looks like an alien who's unstoppable. As people have said, he looks like you know, Kevin Kevin Durant 
if Kevin Durant was going to average four blocks per game in the NBA. Yeah, and if you stretched him out a few inches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Crazy. Uh, his 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 head is too small because his body is too is too long. <laughs> but I'm not. I I just think look maybe slow a roll a little tiny bit. That said, I was the guy who said Sam, we got to talk about Victor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You 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 said we're doing. I had I had missed this because uh, I hadn't been on Twitter that day. So I had I had missed the highlights and then I went back and watched. Um, and oh, my God, uh, I don't look. I remember watching Kevin Durant in college and it was awesome. Right. He was he was making shots that you couldn't believe. It, and his body was shaped in a way that you couldn't believe that someone could make shots at that shape. I think famously, exactly. Yeah. Like he couldn't bench his weight at the NBA combine. He couldn't do one bench press of, it, of his weight at the NBA combine. And everyone was worried, like, oh, he's not strong enough. And then. Of course, he turned out to be Kevin Durant. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm very excited by this. Uh, obviously, he's not coming to Duke. He's going to be the number one pick in the draft next year. There's when you when you Google him now, uh, at least what the version of Google that I get uh, is a series of articles about should X team uh, tank for Victor Wembanyama. It's like, are the Spurs going to do it? Are the Rockets going to do it? Are the Magic going to do it? All these all these teams are they. Are they getting Wenbanyama in the next draft? So that's going to be the the talk of the NBA season. It's going to be an interesting NBA year because, yeah, the teams who, if you're a team where you're like, oh, maybe we could stretch and maybe get into like the, you know, the bottom of the playoffs. Those teams are all going to be like, nope, nope, we're tanking. Because because fans are going to be so excited about Victor Wenbanyama that they are going to be more accepting of the tank than they usually would. Now it's worth noting you could win zero games. You could be the worst team the NBA has ever seen. You have a 14% chance of getting the number one pick. Doesn't get odds do not they it does not get higher than 14%. So we'll see how many teams feel like they need to uh they need to put themselves intentionally in that position. All right, Jason, let's leave it there for now. Donald is not here, so I won't say goodbye for him. He'll have to just come back and, and speak for himself someday. But um, for Jason Evans, I am Sam Klein. This has been episode 448 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Send us emails, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Countdown to Craziness is a week from Friday. It's on the 21st of October. So uh, we have that coming up. We got Duke's got a football game against North Carolina this Saturday. So uh, we would love to see Duke beat North Carolina. It's great when Duke beats North Carolina in any event, in any setting, at any time of the year. We love that sort of thing. And and of course, we're, um, I, I don't know, I'm still feeling a little bitter about about the Final Four. So I'd like to, I'd like to forget about that entirely if, uh, if we can. But we will be back, I am sure, soon to talk about all of that and more. So for Jason, I'm Sam. We'll talk to you again soon. Duke Band, take us home.